so we're going to circle back to this in a little while, um, into that song. But um, I want to, to welcome you to the beginning of our new series in Matthew. And we are going to be in Matthew all the way from now until Easter Sunday. And reading together, if you would join us, reading two chapters a week. Not too long, right? Just a little bit. Two chapters a week, and then a sermon from something in those two chapters, either a parable or a miracle or a particular verse or teaching from the chapter, or maybe just sort of an overall sense of what's going on in those particular chapters. And we invite you to also be a part of our BBCOB sermon group on Facebook. If you're on Facebook and you want to just kind of follow along with what other people are saying or thinking about the, the chapters as we're reading them, um, or providing your own comments to what you think or questions that you have. Um, I find that stuff kind of stuff really helpful. Um, it's, a, it's a safe place. <laughs> it's a safe group. Um, and so we would love for you to, to want to be a part of that. You just call the church office. Let us know. Let me know, hey, I want to be invited to that group. Send me a message on Facebook or text me or whatever, and we'll get you invited, and you can come and be a part of, of that. We've already started that group a little bit this week, thinking about Matthew 1 and, um, and two, and if you're one of those folks, it's like, ah, oh, you know, I want to I read through the Bible in a year, never done it before, eh, that might be a little too aggressive. Maybe reading the Bible through in a year is a little bit too much, but maybe just reading two chapters a week, you could get through the Gospel of Matthew um, here in a few months with us. So we invite you to, uh, invite you to do that. So as we go along with Matthew, I want to talk a little bit um, about today, the necessity of trouble and pain, and looking a little bit at the kind of things we see in Matthew's chapters one and two, and it takes, sorry, I keep looking over here for the screen and it doesn't work, but um, we'll go this. So let's do a couple of introductory comments about Matthew. So Matthew is the first of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, written by a guy named Matthew. And Matthew was one of the 12 disciples and he was a tax collector. So he was a Jewish man who was worked for the Roman government taking taxes from his own people. So he probably wasn't particularly popular. Many tax collectors in that age were corrupt and were bullies and were even worse because whatever money they could collect above and beyond that which they owed the Roman government, they were to keep for themselves. So tax collectors didn't have a really great reputation. We're not really sure exactly whether Matthew was a good tax collector or a bad tax collector, but he was a tax collector who left all to follow Jesus. And when we read his gospel, we see that Matthew's gospel was written primarily to a Jewish audience, right? So this is something that I didn't really know or didn't think about when I first started studying the Bible, but you know, all of the disciples were Jewish, right? They all came out of Judaism. And so um, the primary audience for the gospel and the primary audience for the Bible, the New Testament of it, was, were, were, was Jews. They were the primary audience. And so when you read the gospel of Matthew, you will see over 60 times where Matthew quotes directly or references back to Old Testament. Now, we call it Old Testament. It wouldn't have been referred to them as the Old Testament. It would have been their scriptures, the Jewish scriptures, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and on and on and on. So over 60 times, which is more than any other gospel, Matthew seems to want to try to connect the events of Jesus and his claim to be Messiah to the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah and about Jesus so that Matthew's readers then, his Jewish readers, would be able to say, Oh yeah, I remember reading about that when I was like eight, when I was used to go back to synagogue. I remember listening about that sort of stuff. And so there was the connection there for Matthew. So when you read through Matthew, you'll notice a lot of references back to the Old Testament, which is different than what you might not see in like Luke, for example. It doesn't have as many of those kinds of, kinds of things. So, so that's the idea in Matthew's gospel. And the first two chapters 
well, mostly Christmas story, right? Matthew chapter 1 is the genealogy of Jesus, and then we have Joseph um, having being visited by the angel to learn about this whole virgin birth thing. And then chapter 2, we have the wise men come in, King Herod. King Herod has all the babies in Bethlehem killed. And then Jesus and um, Mary and Joseph are warned to fly, or not fly, they couldn't fly, flee to Egypt. That would have been cool if God had given them a jet. But they had to flee to Egypt to... Uh, to um, evade the persecution. So that's kind of those two chapters in a nutshell. But the question that I want to ask this morning is this. How do you view or understand God's activity in the midst of turmoil and uncertainty? In the storm. How do you view and understand God's activity in the midst of the storm? Right? How do you, how do you look at him? How do you respond to him? Right? When you say amen and it's still raining. As the song said, how do you, where's he at? What do you do? Maybe you're right there right now. Maybe you're today. It's like, yeah, you know, I am, I am in the midst of a storm. Well, how do you view him? What does a Christmas story have to do? And again, I know it's, it's past Christmas, but this is the Matthew chapters one and two. We can't skip them. We have to go what we're doing, all right? And that's what we have. Now, it's true that often in this Christmas story and the way we portray it, we sort of sanitize it. But if you really think about it and you read Matthew 1 and 2, you will see that Jesus was born into much adversity, right? There's an incredible amount of adversity in this birth narrative of Jesus. And we can start right in the beginning with the virgin birth, right? So, you know, you can imagine that the end of the sentence doesn't go very well, right? When Mary is talking to her mom and she says, yeah, I know we're not married, but there was this angel and he came and he's like, no, no, what? They wouldn't believe that. She wouldn't have believed, mom wouldn't have believed that story, right? Yeah, my baby is not only cute, he's the Messiah. Okay, probably not goes over very well. So there's a lot of adversity just simply for Mary and Joseph in the very understanding that they didn't have a baby the normal way. And then, and then we walk through the wise men coming. And, and Herod killing all of the babies in the Bethlehem area of two, all the males, two years old and under. I mean, can you imagine that? I mean, that's just, we don't know exactly how many people, but I mean, the, the horror about that, the, the tragedy in all of that, the storm in all of that. And then, Jesus, uh, Mary and Joseph are warned to flee to Egypt to escape that. And so they not only have to endure the shame and the ridicule of this whole virgin birth concept, but now they've got to leave all their family and take off to a place that would be strange to them. So if you really think about it, though we tend to sanitize it, there is an awful lot of adversity in the Christmas story. This was not easy on Mary. This was not easy on Joseph. And the collateral damage was significant for all of those families around Bethlehem. So how do you and I understand and view adversity and God's activity in the midst of turmoil and uncertainty, right? How do you view it? What do we learn from Matthew chapters 1 and 2 this morning? Well, I have two thoughts. Number one is that God always uses trouble to lead to triumph. God always uses trouble to lead to triumph. From Noah in the book of Genesis all the way to the Apostle John in Revelation, there is always trouble before there is triumph. Right? There's no one in the Gospels that goes to a riches-to-riches riches story. Right? There's, it's a rags-to-riches story. We like that kind of scenario. We appreciate the idea of someone having to persevere, someone having to undergo triumph, or excuse me, having to undergo tragedy before they get triumph in their life. And the reason I think we like, like it so much is because that's just usually the way life is. 
right? That is the way all of the Hallmark movies are, right? They all start out that way. You know, things are going really well, and then something happens, and, and then at the end, they're all in a gazebo, and it's wonderful. They all get, but, but there's tragedy in the middle there somewhere. Right? Any Hallmark Christmas movie fans? Yeah, good for you. See, is, am I not right? It's always that way, right? It's always that way. Right? That's the Christmas story, right? That's the Christmas story. The Christmas story is a rags-to-riches story. Mary and Joseph and those who endured the suffering from Herod were forced to go through incredible adversity and incredible trials and incredible troubles in order to get to the end of the story. And I think most of us have to do that too. Some of you can testify and experience. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of trouble. And some of us, at times, we get to experience the triumph. We get to experience the healing. We get to experience the job comes back. We get to experience the relationship being restored. But sometimes we don't get to experience it. And sometimes we wait and long for the triumph that comes on the other side of eternity. But if you read Matthew chapters 1 and 2, you see that trouble always precedes a triumph. And I believe it's true for you and me. I believe it's illustrated for us even in the genealogy. So in the genealogy of Matthew 1, we have 42 generations of, um, of people listed there. I don't know that there's any particular significance to the 42. What I want to focus on is the women. There are five women mentioned in the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. And all five of these women had to endure some type of tragedy before being included in the genealogy for the very Messiah, the Son of God. We have Tamar, who in the Old Testament was married to one of the sons of Judah. Judah was one of the prominent sons of Israel, one of the prominent tribes of the nation of Israel. And Tamar is married to one of um, his sons. His son dies. I won't go through the whole story, but she ends up having to masquerade as a harlot, as a prostitute, in order to get Judah's attention and to get some justice in her life. Then we have Rahab, who comes into the story in the book of Joshua as the spies come into Jericho. And she is, in fact, a harlot or a prostitute. And she receives the spies based on her faith and her understanding of God and his activity in the world around her. And then we have Ruth. Ruth is listed in the genealogy of Jesus. We have a whole book of the Bible written about Ruth. Ruth was a woman from the country of Moab, which was an enemy of Israel. Ruth's husband dies as a relatively young woman, and she it goes then with Naomi to the land of Israel. But she goes from tragedy to triumph. Tamar from tragedy to triumph. Rahab from tragedy to triumph. Bathsheba, all right, brought into David's house. Don't know what exactly, I tend to, to often think she probably didn't have really much say in this whole thing. But she comes in, and of course we have the adultery, we have the death of Uriah, her husband that David kills, husband, and then her own child is killed by God as an act of judgment. Tragedy, yet triumph as part of the messianic line of Jesus. And then we see Mary. Mary. Will you trust God? We're having trouble with the clicker today. Today's not a technically very savvy day. Will you trust God to unfold your life as he sees fit? God hasn't unfolded my life the way I thought. I think that's probably true for most of us. 
there are segments of our lives, segments of our relationships, segments maybe of our health that, that really didn't unfold the way that we wanted them to unfold. So what do we do with that? Sometimes it's because of our own sin. So we messed up. Sometimes it's because of somebody else. We're the collateral damage to somebody else's sin. We do that. What do you do with that? Will you, will I, trust God to unfold your life as he sees fit? Or do you have a template, a box, and if God does not color inside the lines, you're out? I hope not. What we see in Matthew chapters 1 and 2 is that the coloring in, if you will, of the picture of the birth of the Messiah is way different than anybody expected. Way different than anyone had understood. And yet we see Mary and Joseph trusting. And we see some of the examples of those women in the genealogy trusting. Will you and I trust? Now here's another thing that I think is important for that. So, so tragedy almost always precedes triumph. But then also, your pain and my pain is likely part of God's plan. Now, some people push back on that. So wait a minute, God is not, no, God is a God who gives and a God who what? Takes away, takes away, takes away. But it's reassuring to me to know that my pain, my frustration, my unhappiness is part of God's plan. All of the pain experienced by the players in the Christmas story had been predicted by God. From the virgin birth part, to Mary and Joseph having to flee to go to Egypt, to the death of the children, all was predicted as part of God's plan. That's one of the things that I noticed as I was rereading through Matthew again and thinking about where I wanted to go this morning with this idea of a a sermon and our time together. I was struck by the five times in the first two chapters of Matthew, that Matthew reiterates that the event that happened was foretold or prophesied hundreds of years before. So let me just show you those really quickly. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 22, when the angel comes to Joseph to reveal this whole virgin birth thing, the angel, or Matthew commenting on that, says, so all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, and you can go back and read the actual prophecy. So, so all of this, so Joseph, this isn't plan B, man. This is, this is the way it was going to happen from the beginning of time. Then as the wise men come to Herod and want to know where is the king of the Jews, the king inquires of his own wise men, and they come back and they say, hey, we know the scriptures. They said to Herod, hey, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet. It's right there in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. The Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. So that was all part of the plan. Then in uh, chapter 2, verse 15, as uh, Mary and Joseph are warned to go to Egypt, it says that they were there until the death of Herod, that it, that's supposed to be an it, not I, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying. So their journey to Egypt, their fleeing from their home for their lives was not an accident. The pain that was caused by that, the discomfort that they must have endured in having to pick up everything and go to Egypt was something that was part of the plan for hundreds and hundreds of years made known by the prophet. 
then even the death of the babies, the death of all the male children in Bethlehem and the surrounding area. We read in chapter 2, verse 17, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the Jeremiah, the prophet, saying, and I didn't take the time to write the prophecy, but all of that was part of the plan. It's all part of the plan. It wasn't surprise to God. And there's the last example that's here in just these first two chapters was when they come back from Egypt and Mary and Joseph and then Jesus and he came and dwelled in a city called Nazareth that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets. And it's interesting to me that five separate times in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew reminds the reader then, and I think you and me today, that all of this discomfort, all of this unsettledness, all of this even horror was all part of the plan. It's not a surprise. It didn't catch God off guard. It was actually there. And so when you and I think about the pain, the detours that have come into our lives, whether it's been because of our own sin or because of the collateral damage of someone else, it's all been part of the what? The plan. It's always been there. It's never caught God by surprise. When David writes, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The shadow of evil is not a surprise for the good shepherd. He knew that it was there. None of this was planned B. Now, I don't understand why, right? I don't understand why these things had to happen. And probably you don't either. But will you trust him? Will you praise him in the storm? Will you say to God, you know what, God, I don't understand why, but I'm going to trust you anyway, and I want you to walk with me. I'd love for you to deliver me. I'd love for you to make it all better, but, but I'd rather have you even than the blessings, right? Open up the sky, fall down like rain. We don't want blessings. We want you. I was sure by now, God, you would have reached down and wiped my tears away, stepped in to save the day. But once again, I say amen, and it's still raining. If you've never been there, it's just because you're not asking (laughs) You're not praying, right? I mean, it's like, well, that's never happened to me. Well, that's just because you're not asking God to do anything then. But I mean, if if you're involved in asking him to be involved in your life, and, and I don't think there's anything wrong with asking God to take away the pain, to take away the suffering, to heal the person, to whatever it might be, and you say amen, and you kind of open up your eyes, and it's still raining, that's the way it works. That's the Christian experience, There's nobody who prays and it's sunny every time they open up their eyes, right? And every time that they pray and what they ask for, they get. And it doesn't work that way. It only works that way for people who write really bad theology books. It doesn't really work for them either. But they'll take your 1995. As the thunder rolls, I barely hear you whisper through the rain. What? I'm with you. I'm with you. So what do you want? You want blessings? Or you want him? It's true 
at least it seems true in my life and probably yours, that many times his presence seems clearer and sweeter during the trials instead of the triumphs. And as your mercy falls, I raise my hands and praise the God who gives and takes away. And then I find what's so exciting about this song, the declaration, I'll praise you in the storm, and I will lift my hands. For you are who you are, no matter where I am. Are you there? I will praise you in this storm, and I will lift my hands. For you are who you are, no matter where I am. Are you there? If not, that's where God wants you to be. God will take you there right now. I praise you in this storm and I will lift my hands for you are who you are no matter where I am. And every tear I cry, you hold in your hand. You've never left my side. And though my heart is torn, I will praise you in the storm. Beloved, there is no heart that is not torn. There is no heart that is not torn. But God offers you and me himself in the middle of the storm. One last, last way to put it. When you don't understand God's activity... Will you stand under God's sovereignty? When you don't understand God's activity, will you stand under his sovereignty and praise him in the storm? What I'd like to do this morning is just offer you an opportunity to recite Psalm 121 together, which is the genesis or the, I think, the inspiration for the song, Praise You in the Storm. Could you get me over there to those slides there, Dan? So if you would, would you just read this with me? And, and, and before we do it, if you're there, I mean, if you're in the midst of the storm, my desire is for these words to be your prayer. And I cannot promise you that when you say amen, it won't still be ringing. But I can promise you that he wants to be with you. And I can promise you that the, his presence is actually better than if he would just make it all go away. Praise team, would you come on up? Let's just say this together. I will lift up my eyes to the hills from whence comes my help. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow my foot to be moved he who keeps me will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is my keeper. The Lord is my shade at my right hand. The sun shall not strike me by day nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve me from all evil. He shall preserve my soul. The Lord shall preserve my going out and my coming in 
from this time forth and even forevermore. He will. Let's pray. God, I cannot imagine what it must have been like to have been Mary and Joseph in just this small little segment of their life that we have in chapters 1 and 2. To be put in the position that you put them in is, quite honestly, seems unfair. But I remember the words of Mary, Behold, I'm your maidservant. And I believe, though they didn't know the music of casting crowns, and they didn't have the benefit of seeing the empty tomb, they praised you in the storm. And they followed you. It wouldn't surprise me if there were many times that they asked you for another way. Just as Jesus asked for another way. But when they said amen, though it was still raining, they knew that you were with them. And God, as we walk through 2020, some of us may be in the midst of storms right now, and we've prayed and we've said amen and it's still raining. There may be something coming in March or May or August. And we don't even, we're not even aware of it today. But you are. And the pain is part of the plan of conforming us to the image of Jesus. I pray that we'll praise you in the storm. We'll lift our hands because you are who you are no matter where we are. So God, please meet us where we are. Provide what we need. Assure us of your presence. Move us to reach out for help. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're able, please stand as we sing our closing songs. I believe we'll have someone in the back room to pray with you if you'd like to be prayed with today about anything. If we can help you in any way, please don't hesitate to ask. Let's sing all who are thirsty.